Welcome to Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church. This is episode 6 in a series examining the impact Christianity has had on history and culture. Today, we continue our look at the impact the faith has had on the world's view of charity and compassion, specifically in the founding of hospitals and healthcare. In an earlier episode, we noted how so many of what are called the liberal ideals of modern society have their roots in the Christian transformation of culture, specifically in Western civilization. Those ideas flowed from the faith's high view of the sanctity of life, which was a radical departure from the pagan view of man and the strict classicism that had dominated the ancient world. The dilemma today is that secular liberalism wants to keep the advantages and rights that Christianity brought, but without the moral and spiritual core that empowered them. Christianity's exalted view of man is based on its higher and prior exalted view of God. Gut society of that view of God and its view of man is destined to decline, which is precisely what we're seeing in modern Western societies today. As one philosopher posed the question, can man be good without God? The answer is, well, not for long. As my pastor Chuck Smith said many years ago, is it any wonder that when schools tell children that they're nothing but the chance result of random chemical reactions and that they're descended from the apes, that they begin to act like it and live by the law of the jungle, even though they're living in Los Angeles or London? Those who assume that modern charity and compassion whether it be government welfare or voluntary assistance, developed on its own without the energizing influence of Christianity, are simply misinformed. People need to understand that civilization isn't some kind of mystical force that happens on its own. It's not the product of social evolution where man just keeps getting better and better. Christianity was the premier civilizing influence that shaped the modern world and gave Western civilization the benefits that have meant advancement. A German historian by the name of C. Schmidt a century ago said that to disregard Christianity's influence in civilizing the ancient world is, quote, blind to the history of nations and the history of the human heart. Both proclaim loudly that charity cannot be the product of egoism nor a humility of pride, that without the intervention of God, no new spirit could have regenerated individuals in the world, unquote. Carlton Hayes said, quote, From the wellsprings of Christian compassion, our Western civilization has drawn its inspiration and its sense of duty for feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, looking after the homeless, clothing the naked, tending the sick, and visiting the prisoner, unquote. Who built hospitals? Who founded rescue missions in decaying inner cities? who built orphanages, soup kitchens, who founded charitable societies, taught literacy, worked tirelessly to end slavery, campaigned for equal rights, ended child labor. It was Christians, men and women, who understood the sanctity of human life and the urgency of guarding human dignity. That's who. It's been interesting watching the assault the new atheists have leveled on religion in general and Christianity in particular. They say the faith is standing in the way of human progress. Yet, virtually every support that makes it even possible for them to say that was provided by Christians living out their faith. Where, pray tell, are the atheist rescue missions and orphanages? Where are the atheist-founded and funded hospitals? 
Jesus was concerned for people's bodies as well as their souls. In commending the faithfulness of the disciples in Matthew 25, Jesus lauded their feeding and clothing the needy. The Gospels tell us as part of his ministry, Jesus went all over Israel healing illness and disease. The blind, deaf, palsied, lame, and even the socially outcast lepers were all healed by him. Indeed, Jesus' ministry seemed to pulse between these two poles, teaching and healing. Frequently, the text tells us that he was moved with compassion as he looked on the crowds that came to him. Since the goal of a disciple is to be just like his rabbi, when Jesus sent his boys out on their own ministry exercise, they went forth teaching and healing. When they returned, they were stoked about the miracles they'd seen God work through them. Later, when the apostles went out to continue Jesus' mission of preaching the gospel, they carried on the holistic task of expanding the kingdom of God by both preaching and healing. This personal, literal, physical touch was a far cry from the cult of Gnosticism that a century later would reduce the gospel to an esoteric message utterly divorced from the physical. The Greco-Roman world that the early Christians lived in was void of care for the sick and dying. Oh, sure, there were doctors, and there were even a few healing centers, but these were exclusively for the service of the rich and powerful. Dionysus, who was a Christian pastor of the 3rd century, described the behavior of the people of Alexandria during a plague in about the year 250 AD. He said that they, quote, thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their dearest friends. They cast the afflicted out onto the public roads, half dead, and left them unburied. The sick were treated with utter contempt when they died, unquote. But the Christians, he reported, came to the aid of the sick and dying. They ignored the danger to themselves. He wrote, quote, Very many of our brethren, while in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness, did not spare themselves, but kept by each other, and visited the sick without thought of their own peril and ministered to them assiduously and treated them for their healing in Christ. While they died from time to time most joyfully, drawing upon themselves their neighbor's diseases and willingly taking over on their own persons the burden of the sufferings of those around them." As I noted in a recent episode, the Emperor Julian, who wanted to roll back the ground Christianity had made in the empire and to reinstall paganism, lamented that pagans could not come close to the charity and compassion exhibited by even the humblest of Jesus' followers. In truth, Romans considered helping the sick as a sign of weakness. They thought it manly to resist the inner urge to pity. When Christians stayed to help the sick during a time of plague, well, it unmasked the Roman idea as weak while showing that compassion was courageous. Christians of the 1st through 4th centuries rejected the callous and inhuman culture of the Greco-Roman world. They considered everyone as having an eternal and potentially redeemable soul. It pleased God to tend to anyone regardless of their social status. Because eternal life awaited those who believed in Christ, life on earth wasn't the ultimate value. If someone died while caring for the sick, well, a far better life lay ahead. And if a sick person came to faith in Christ because of the charity that was shown them, well, then another soul was gained for heaven. That kind of thought and behavior was foreign to paganism. Few of those early Christians who risked their lives to tend the ill had their names recorded for posterity. Few, but not none. One name that is known was Beninius of Dijon, 
a second century Christian martyred in Epanyi because he, quote, nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures, unquote. Rescuing frail, unwanted children was an insult to the Romans because it violated their cultural norms. Remember the words of Seneca, the first century Roman philosopher who said, quote, we drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal, unquote. Because of the pagan low regard for human life and their devaluing of the sick by not caring for them, there were no hospitals for the treatment or care of the general populace. A careful study of history may object and query, wait a minute, what about the nearly 300 temples to Asclepius, the god of healing? Weren't those ancient hospitals? And the answer is, no, not really. Sick people went there, but not to be tended by a doctor or to receive treatment. No, they went there to ask the deity for healing and maybe that he would reveal to them what treatment might help, but no medicine was applied there. Yes, there were other places where doctors could be asked for assistance, but while people might be told what treatment to seek, they weren't nursed at the temple of Asclepius. The few places where the ill could convalesce were limited only to the recovery of people deemed worthy because of some benefit that they provided society or their master. So there were treatment centers for people like wounded gladiators and soldiers, but there was nothing for the treatment and recovery of the lower classes, simply nothing. In India, the third century BC, King Ahsoka commanded that hospitals be constructed, but it's not known who or for what they were, because while the command was given, it was never carried out. When Europeans arrived in the 18th century, there were no hospitals in India. Simply stated, charity hospitals for the poor and needy did not exist prior to Christianity introducing them. During the first three centuries, when Christians were the object of frequent and severe persecution, the most they could do was care for the sick where they found them, or, in extreme cases, by taking them into their homes. After Constantine removed the ban on the faith in the early 4th century, Christians were able to direct more attention toward caring for the sick and dying. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, bishops were directed to set up hospices in every city with a major church. Many of the early Christian hospitals were not what people understand by them today. While their most important function was to nurse and to heal the sick, they also provided shelter for the poor and lodging for Christian pilgrims. These hospitals, which were known as Xenodokia, were prompted by Christ's command to care for the physically sick and by the early apostolic teaching that Christians must be hospitable to strangers and travelers. The first real hospital was built by St. Basil in Caesarea of Cappadocia in A.D. 369. It was part of a large complex that included houses for physicians and nurses, some workshops, and schools. The rehabilitation buildings and workshops gave those with no occupational skills an opportunity to learn a trade while they were recuperating. The compound's comprehensive nature reveals additional humanitarian awareness. It's difficult to argue this awareness had nothing to do with the spirit of Christ that was alive in St. Basil, the good bishop of Caesarea. After St. Basil's hospital was built in the east, and another in Edessa in 375, Fabiola, who was a wealthy widow and associate of Jerome, built the first hospital in the west in Rome in about 390. According to Jerome, Fabiola donated all of her considerable wealth to construct it. She then brought in the sick from the streets. They later built another such hospital in the port of Ostia, 50 miles from Rome. 
Since this isn't a podcast on the history of hospitals, I'll drop the chronicle there. Suffice it to say, more were built and staffed throughout the empire and the world, wherever Christianity gained a foothold. While the Age of Discovery was more often than not a purely commercial enterprise, whenever new realms were opened, Christian missionaries followed and established bases to bring physical relief as well as spiritual light. The first mental institutions were built and run by Christians. Their later devolution into the hands of secular psychologists saw some of the most bizarre and inhuman treatments of the mentally infirm. It's important to note that nursing as a profession had its origin completely in the Christian impetus to help the sick and infirm and provide dignity for the dying. Florence Nightingale is world-renowned in her care for the sick and the wounded. At great personal peril and cost, she ministered to the physically needy, all in the compassion of Christ and for God's glory. In 1864, Jean-Henri Dunant, along with four others, started the International Red Cross. While Dunant was a sometimes fierce critic of the organized church, he was driven by Christ's example and called to care for the physical needs of the poor, weak, sick, and needy. This brief review of hospitals and healthcare is enlightening in terms of what it says about the current healthcare system and debate. Modern society has come to view healthcare as virtually a right. Many believe that it's the government's duty to provide health care as a basic privilege of citizenship. Well, that's a far cry from the Greco-Roman roots that many of these same people say they want to return to. It was Christianity, especially the faith that developed during the Middle Ages, that infiltrated and seasoned Western civilization and bequeathed to the modern world its exalted view of medical care, all based on the sanctity of human life, which rests on the foundation of a conviction that man is created in God's image. One additional remark. As I record this episode, the United States, which is where I live, is engaged in a rather acrimonious debate over radical Islam and terrorism. A mass shooting in San Bernardino took place just a couple of days ago and a couple of hours from where I live. The Syrian refugee dilemma is in the daily news. So, President Obama held a national speech from the Oval Office of the White House to address these issues. He labored to make a distinction between radical jihadists and the larger religion of Islam. Many of the listeners to Communio Sanctorum are aware that Islam has a long and checkered past. In the history of medicine, it has been a handful of Muslim physicians who've advanced the medical arts and bequeathed practices that shaped the origins of of modern medicine. But by digging a little deeper, we discovered that these Muslim doctors learned a good part of their practices from earlier Christian schools in the East, at places like Edessa and Gundishpur. These schools were conquered by Muslim invaders, and their works were then translated into Arabic. As we end this episode, I want to say thanks to the many new subscribers to Communio Sanctorum and for referring others to the podcast. Thanks as well to all those that have popped by the Facebook page to give us a like. like